In this lecture, as Richard said, we're going to look at Russia after communism. How did Russia fare when the Soviet Union disappeared? And how far has today's Russia been able to put the legacy of its Soviet past behind it? And how far does the country, its leaders, and its people still live in its shadows? Now, whereas the first three lectures were from distinguished historians, my approach is slightly different. As a journalist, and at times an eyewitness to some of the events we'll be charting, where appropriate, I'll draw on my own experience. And before we get to Russia after communism, I'd just like to roll the clock back a bit to the lead-up to the Soviet collapse to explore why it happened the way it did and what it felt like at the time. Because one of the most surprising things about the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 was that, yes, this was a cataclysmic event in historical terms, the demise of a far-reaching communist empire, the end of the Cold War, and the emergence of a newly independent Russia. And yes, the moment of transition was literally marked by explosions, a massive fireworks display lighting up the night sky around the Kremlin just as midnight struck as on December the 31st, 1991. But actually, the event, when it came, was almost an anticlimax. The old Soviet Union disappeared, not with a bang, but a whimper. State collapse had come to seem almost inevitable, the inescapable outcome of a steadily deepening economic, political, and social degradation. It was, of course, the decision to elect Mikhail Gorbachev as Kremlin leader in March 1985, which set in train the final act of the drama that was the end of the Soviet Union. As Professor Polly Jones in her Gresham lecture said, his initial perestroika aim was not to sweep away the Soviet Union at all, but to revitalise a moribund and dysfunctional system. To begin with, he and his aides had only an inkling of the problem. It was only when they got past the extravagant rhetorical claims of the, of the Soviet Union and read the secret Politburo papers, which exposed how rotten the country's economy was, that they realised much deeper reforms were going to be needed. I remember Alexander Yakovlev, one of Gorbachev's closest allies in the Politburo at the time, telling me that it was like peeling an onion. You took off one layer and then stripped off another and another and then found that all you were left with at the core was a tangle of lies and corrupt practices. What's more, in 1985, Gorbachev had personal reasons to seek evolutionary rather than revolutionary change. At Moscow University in the 1950s, one of his closest student friends was a young Czech called Zdenek Mlinac, who later went on to be one of the leading figures of the Prague Spring, that socialist reform movement in Czechoslovakia, which in 1968 was suppressed by a Soviet-led invasion. Years later, I interviewed Gorbachev for a TV documentary, and he confessed that the crushing of the Prague Spring in 1968 had left him sick to his stomach, and it had convinced him that any future reform in his own country could only succeed if it was done cautiously, step by step, to avoid a violent backlash from reform opponents in the party leadership. So when Gorbachev came to power, his approach was a deft game of brinkmanship, which was in fact a balancing act, keeping the communist old guard on board by convincing them that some updating of the system was in their interest, while fueling a popular appetite for change from below by lifting the lid on censorship, his policy known as glasnost or openness. In effect, his idea was to enlist the people's support to strengthen his position against his own sceptical colleagues in the Soviet Politburo and other conservative communist leaders in Eastern Europe. But Gorbachev's attempts to proceed slowly didn't work. Not only had he and his fellow Kremlin reformers underestimated the depth of the country's economic problems, they had not reckoned on the extent of popular disillusionment with the Communist Party and its 70-year monopoly on power. Both in the Soviet client states of Eastern Europe, where discontent simmered barely concealed beneath the surface, and in the Soviet Union's own increasingly restless republics, and eventually even in Russia itself, a challenge which was to become an existential battle for the Soviet Union's continued survival. Ironically, given the decades of suspicion and hostility between the Cold War rivals, what proved easier to manage was embarking on a new era of international relations, and in particular, a series of groundbreaking arms deals with the United States to slash back stockpiles of nuclear weapons. The first superpower summit between Mikhail Gorbachev and the American president, Ronald Reagan, took place in 1985, almost immediately. 
Several more followed and were continued by the next US President, George H. Bush. And these summits were about much more than nuclear weapons. Personal contacts between the leaders and other Soviet senior officials broke down years of mistrust on both sides and opened the doors to other sorts of collaboration. One perhaps lesser known aspect of these contacts was that it proved to be a way to help Gorbachev better understand the mechanisms of a modern market economy, something his education based on a Marxist-Leninist economic theory had left him ill-prepared for. President Reagan's Secretary of State at the time was George Schultz, a professor of international economics from Stanford University in California. And he once told me that on his many visits to the Kremlin to prepare summits, he used to take he took to taking flowcharts and diagrams that he used in his student seminars to illustrate to an eager Gorbachev how global macroeconomics and international trade patterns worked. This story of the warming up of East-West relations was at the time expressed above all as a moral imperative, the mutual obligation of the two Cold War superpowers, who between them held more than 90% of all nuclear weapons, to work together to pull the world back from the danger of a nuclear conflagration. But on the Kremlin side, it was, of course, also driven by economics. The Soviet Union had to reduce its military expenditure. The cost of an escalating arms race, recently ramped up by President Reagan, was unaffordable, especially if Gorbachev was to have a hope of tackling the dire inefficiencies and shortages which left Soviet consumers so frustrated. And the country needed to catch up with the West technologically. In the late 1980s, some of you may remember, the United States and Europe were moving towards personal computers and mobile phones. But Russian shopkeepers were still totting up bills on abacuses. And the Soviet oil lakes in western Siberia, which since the 1950s had been an easy source of domestic energy and a crucial source of export revenues, were beginning to run dry. Deeper drilling and an injection of foreign know-how were urgently needed. Added to the economic pressure the global oil price also dropped, reducing the amount of foreign currency coming into the government's coffers, to this day a vulnerability which periodically shakes the Russian economy. It's worth noting that the narrative you hear from anti-Western commentators in Russia today about the 1980s is that Gorbachev was hoodwinked by the Americans and other Western leaders into pursuing policies at odds with the Soviet national interest. The argument goes that the real aim of the West then as now, was not to help the Soviet Union sort out its problems, but find ways to weaken and ultimately destroy it. The ramping up of the arms race, the push for liberalisation, even the drop in the oil price, it's claimed, were all engineered to lead the country to collapse. And Gorbachev was an idiot for going along with it. In fact, the United States in particular had a lot invested in supporting Gorbachev and keeping the Soviet Union going, not least because if the Soviet Union disappeared, what guarantees would there be that any new leader would adhere to all those carefully crafted arms control treaties? In the summer of 1991, George H. Bush even travelled to Lithuania and Ukraine to urge the growing nationalist movements there not to break ties with Moscow. His appeal to people in the Ukraine to stay inside the Soviet Union is known as his Chicken Kiev speech. <laughs> It was in the Baltic states that the first serious cracks in the Soviet edifice emerged. These three tiny republics had been occupied and then annexed by the Soviet Union during World War II and always maintained an independence of spirit and a reluctance to see themselves as part of the Soviet Union. In August 1989, we can see the picture here, citizens from all three countries joined hands to form a long human chain stretching hundreds of miles from Estonia in the north through Latvia to Lithuania in the south just one of many mass protests against what they claimed was an illegal Soviet occupation. I went to cover it. I remember it was absolutely impossible to work out if the chain really did join up all the way along. They said it did, but we have to take their word for it. Their campaign for independence was reinforced by what happened in Eastern Europe. In late 1989, as you'll all remember, the Berlin Wall came down, and before long, Eastern European communist governments were being replaced by non-communists, who swiftly opted to leave Moscow's security alliance, the Warsaw Pact, and turn their country westwards. Gorbachev, rejecting the Brezhnev Doctrine, which had led the Soviet Union to crush the Prague Spring in 1968, made it very clear he was not prepared to use force in Eastern Europe. His foreign policy spokesman, Gennady Gerasimov, who used to brief us every day, joked that now there was a Sinatra Doctrine, 
because each country was being told it could decide its future course for itself and do it my way, like the Frank Sinatra song. If Gorbachev had thought there might then follow a slow loosening of ties which would allow for a new pan-security umbrella to emerge across East and West Europe, a new European home, as he used to call it, Norvig-Yevropejski Dom, he was mistaken. Instead, Soviet power and influence in Eastern Europe evaporated precipitously. Gorbachev did do a deal with the German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl, to accept German unification in return for West Germany helping to fund the repatriation of Soviet troops. But the issue of the future of European security remained contentious. And Gorbachev subsequently, and on more than one occasion, complained, a complaint that Vladimir Putin has taken up, that NATO leaders had promised him that the alliance wouldn't extend westward. The Americans say there were no firm commitments. Whatever was promised or not promised, over the next decades, as we know, NATO enlargement did indeed take place to meet the demands first of Eastern European nations and then the Baltic states to be allowed under the NATO umbrella, partly out of fear that one day they might need protecting against a resurgent Russia. And at one point, when George W. Bush was president, the possibility of NATO membership was even dangled in front of the former Soviet republics of Georgia and Ukraine to the anger of Moscow, the result being the issue is now a major point of disagreement between Russia and the West. But of course, in those chaotic days of Soviet collapse, just predicting what might happen next week, let alone years later, was all but impossible. Not everyone saw the implosion of Eastern Europe coming. Vladimir Putin, then a KGB officer in Dresden in East Germany, was one of those caught out. In his autobiography, First Person, he describes how he and a, co he and a colleague burnt classified documents day and night fearing that a lynch mob might break in and confiscate the secret material. And in their fluster to destroy it all as quickly as possible, they even managed to set the furnace on fire. So this glimpse of a frantic young KGB officer, wrong-footed by events, which seemed to come out of nowhere to destroy his country and his own professional career too, is, I think, instructive. It helps explains why later President Putin was to call the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. And it was an early incident which probably helped underpin his later suspicion of popular revolts in Georgia and Ukraine, as well as the Arab uprisings in Cairo and Tunis in 2011, where mass crowds succeeding in, succeeded in ousting unpopular, but he would argue still legitimate, governments. But back inside the Soviet Union in 1990, the Baltic states were first in the queue to follow Eastern Europe's lead and push for greater freedom. Gorbachev tried to resist it, but by now he was unable to stop the processes which he had initiated. Because not only was the Soviet economy in crisis and the Soviet Communist Party no, no longer all-powerful, but there were more and more demands for autonomy or even outright secession from other Soviet republics, including the two most important, Ukraine and Russia itself, where a campaign for Russia to be allowed to run its own affairs became the rallying cry of a new leader called Boris Yeltsin. In August 1991, the crisis came to a head with Soviet military and security chiefs desperately trying to turn the clock back, staging an attempted coup to try to stop the process of disintegration. Within days, the coup failed, and it served only to hasten the final collapse. And by the end of December 1991, Gorbachev had no choice but to stand down as Soviet president, hand over the codes the nuclear suitcase to the new Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, and make a dignified exit into a long retirement. The Soviet flag was lowered from the Kremlin flagpole, and the Russian tricolor took its place. The 15 Soviet republics, including Russia, became independent nations. The Soviet Union was no more. It's hard to remember now that when Boris Yeltsin took over from Gorbachev, as the first ever Russian president to occupy the Kremlin, he was still hugely popular. In the Putin era, the tendency subsequently has been to remember him as a figure of ridicule who was an embarrassment to his country. But back then, in early 1992, he was seen as energetic and courageous, a symbol of the renewal that Russia desperately needed. He was the hero who stood on the tank to urge the Russian people to defy the coup leaders in August. The reformer prepared to take radical decisions where Gorbachev had been prone to hesitation and a new president who was making it possible to revive Russia's national identity after its near death during the Soviet era. However, it didn't take long for it to become clear to all of us 
that the new Russian president's behavior was somewhat troubling. He would disappear for days at moments when a clear sense of direction was needed, especially over the floundering economy. And when he did appear in public, his speech was sometimes slurred and elliptical. His aides claimed it was all about medication for old sports injuries, but other rumors suggested alcoholism. It was as though the impossible burdens of the state were physically overpowering and aging him. His absences reinforced a growing sense of chaos and uncertainty. And I often look at pictures like this and remember, you know, before all this started, he was actually quite handsome <laughs> and vigorous. And in 10 years, you'll see in a photo later on, he was just a shadow of his former self. Because the challenges that he and his new government faced were astronomical. Their economic plan was known as shock therapy. And the aim was try, to try to move Russia as fast as possible into a market economy. The new reformers in his government believed that only by swiftly eliminating the vestiges of the old Soviet state-controlled system and stimulating private enterprise could the country hope to kick-start its economy again and avoid the danger of a counter-coup, a stealthy return to old bureaucratic habits and backhanders by those too invested in the old system to relinquish it. So small-scale private enterprise was made legal virtually overnight. Price controls were lifted and prices on all but a few basic foodstuffs were allowed to float as high as the market could bear. It was a radical move to stimulate productivity, to fill the empty sh shop shelves and deliver to the Soviet con consumers the goods they'd for so long been unable to access. So whereas in the Soviet Union in the early 1980s, I remember I once saw an old, old lady arrested for the innocent crime of selling homemade cakes to commuters at a bus stop, now such activities were positively encouraged. Kiosks selling snacks and trinkets popped up overnight on pavements and in underpasses. Corner shops selling groceries became commonplace. Amateur traders lined up outside metro stations to hawk anything they thought there might be a market for, from buckets of potatoes and flowers from the gardens to family antiques and second-hand clothes to live kittens snuggled inside an overcoat. But on a larger scale, introducing private enterprise to a centrally planned economy which had been focused around heavy industry and an outsized military sector for several decades was no easy task. In Soviet times, private ownership had been banned, so the state was the country's only employer. State factories and collective farms didn't just provide jobs for local people. They also ran local schools and kindergartens and culture centres and polyclinics. The new Russian government came up with a scheme to distribute vouchers to citizens so they could participate in a nationwide privatisation scheme. This was all very well. But where a factory came with a school and a hospital attached and was anyway loss-making and unproductive, who would want to buy into that burden? And if not, who should shoulder the responsibility for the social services? In some places, the local economy of a whole town or city was totally dependent on a single metalworks or tannery or smelting plant. Many of these were in remote places where people lived much of the year in harsh wintry conditions, and we all know what wintry means in Russia. To leave such enterprises prone to bankruptcy in the new unforgiving world of capitalist Russia risked seeing whole communities go under with them. To make matters worse, the old system of trade barter between factories and suppliers in various parts of the Soviet Union no longer functioned properly. Now, national borders had replaced the once invisible boundaries between different Soviet republics. To begin with, the old ruble still functioned as a currency across much of the former Soviet space. But as time went on, alternative currencies emerged and new customs and trade arrangements took hold. And Russia, at the heart of the old Soviet web, was often the loser. As a result, no surprise, Russian industrial production plummeted. Enterprises once seen as symbols of Soviet pride closed down. Many of them, especially in smaller provincial towns, remain empty and discarded to this day. This photo is of a now defunct industrial zone in southwest Moscow. And actually, I took the photo in 2015. And you see that in a lot of out-of-the-way Russian towns, some quite big. Um, it's always a surprise to me how much of this you see. This area is still virtually abandoned. Some of its outhouses are rented out as storage space to intrepid startups who want a Moscow address. I was there because I was interviewing one of them, and they told me that apparently the location is hired to movie companies who are doing World War II films. 
if they need a suitably derelict background to stage battle scenes and shootouts. So that's what happened to some of Soviet industry. But not all industry went under. Some enterprising young businessmen bought up loss-making plants that knocked down prices in return for supporting Yeltsin in his re-election campaign in 1996. The deal was known as the sale of the century. They snapped up these failing enterprises in potentially lucrative sectors like oil and gas and precious metals, aware they could turn them into multi-million dollar profit-making export businesses. And in time, these entrepreneurs became some of Russia's richest men, the so-called oligarchs of Russia. So what did it feel like for an ordinary Russian citizen to be plunged virtually overnight into this new post-Soviet universe? Well, let's be clear that not all of it was bad. Many in Russia were jubilant at the changes, at least to start with. For some, it was a liberation, the last remaining restrictions on what could be said in public or published or performed were lifted. Those who were educated and entrepreneurial or had foreign languages now had the chance to travel and start new businesses and develop their own individual potential for the first time. As a foreigner living in Moscow, I remember the extraordinary impact of suddenly feeling free from being observed or reported on. It was well known that the KGB monitored foreigners carefully controlling and even restricting their movements. When I arrived in Moscow as correspondent in 1989, you needed a special permit even to drive beyond the Moscow ring road. Now, in these early years of post-communist Russia, we foreigners could travel freely throughout the country. And relations with Russian friends were less complicated. A psychological barrier was lifted. No longer was there the fear that someone might be eavesdropping or keeping an eye on you. For many Russians, though, especially those that were part of the old system, Communist Party members, government officials, or, like Vladimir Putin, members of the KGB security services or the army, what happened was a tragedy. They were now being blamed for all the ills of the old system. Many found themselves pensioned off and out of a job and had to scramble to find new careers as consultants or commercial dealers. Mr Putin reinvented himself to become deputy mayor of St Petersburg, and from there leapfrogged into a political career in the Kremlin in Moscow. But for other Russian citizens, trapped in remote parts of the country, such opportunities were of course non-existent. For these people with little experience of the outside world and little understanding of the risks, as well as the benefits of a market economy, the transition wasn't just scary, it was terrifying. The old world may have been characterised by shortages and miserable living standards and restrictions from the party, but at least everyone had a job and prices were the same. Now there was no safety net, hyperinflation, and people stayed in jobs even when firms couldn't pay them. I remember men on the factory floor telling me they'd been working for six months without pay, just an odd bag of oranges or a slab of meat as compensation for unpaid wages. I remember the first week of January 1992, I went out on the street to gauge the reaction. And ordinary people were, well, they were panic-stricken. It wasn't just the new prices, one egg suddenly costing one old lady's monthly pension. It was the terrible realisation that free prices meant tomorrow's egg could be even more expensive. And for even younger people who spoke English and had a modern education, it was a huge adjustment. Shopkeepers didn't always want to shoulder the risk this is too stressful, one of them told me, one bookshop owner. And some people took a while to grasp the fundamentals. I went to one seminar for Russian banking officials run by a British accounting firm, and at the end, one young Russian put up his hand, fluent English speaker, and said, excuse me, what is profit? <laughs> by contrast, of course, some people did see, I talked about the oligarchs, a lucrative business opportunity, and the other people well-versed in that were those who'd come from the illegal world of the Soviet black market, Actually, with the oligarchs, it turned out quite a few of them had been schooled in mathematics or theoretical physics. I remember once asking them one about, about this, and he said in reply, oh, in our university seminars, we had to solve theoretical problems in five or six dimensions. Adapting to the new rules of post-Soviet society is easy. It's just like solving a new problem. But for most people, the confusion was overwhelming. The rupture of links with former republics, the refugees, the hyperinflation, the unemployment... And then clashes, first of all between President Yeltsin and his own parliament in 1993, and then a terrible war against the separatists in the southern region of Chechnya. It's worth dwelling on the upheaval and the stress this caused. In just four short months at the end of 1991, 
The Soviet Communist Party that ruled Russia for over 70 years was outlawed. The Soviet Union was abolished. Boris Yeltsin brought in his reformers who brought in price controls, and then they began privatisation. Each change revolutionary. Imagine if something like that happened in, in Britain. And as a result, not surprisingly, life expectancy levels in Russia plummeted. Between 1987 and 1994, according to one RAND research paper, the number of people dying in Russia each year went up by a million. You normally only see that when a country is going through a war, one World Health Organization official told me. So no wonder, in this world that many Russians found themselves in, the buzzwords of democracy and liberalism became pejorative. And business, which had always meant shady dealings, was now equated with thievery and corruption. And then there was the bewilderment about their identity. One moment, they were citizens of an international superpower with nuclear weapons and Nobel Prize winners and a world-class tradition of literature and ballet and music. And then the countries vanished overnight, and the new Russia is an economic basket case, treated as a poor relation by the West, littered with bankrupt factories and poorly protected by an army which couldn't even feed itself or maintain its equipment. I remember visiting Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula in 1994, where the Russian Black Sea Fleet has its home. Uh, they'd lease it. They leased it from Ukraine at that point. And every morning, the sailors would swab the decks and line up to salute the Russian flags. But the big grey vessels never left harbour because, I was told, they couldn't afford the fuel to go out on exercise. Sevastopol was a bastion of Soviet patriotism, by the way. You would have thought that the Soviet Union in 1994 was still alive and well. Soviet military heroes, Red Party communist slogans on the roofs. It's no wonder that when Vladimir Putin, some 20 years later, went to annex Crimea, he was able to harness Sevastopol's patriotic fervour and nostalgia for the Soviet past to claim that the local people wanted it. So we shouldn't underestimate Russian loss and humiliation. The end of Soviet communism might have seemed a good news story in the West, and it was an extraordinary end to over 70 years of oppression and a revolution which happened almost without bloodshed. But I remember I made a BBC radio series at the time which we called A Revolution Without Shots, and I often thought it was really to the credit of the Russian people and their leaders that they made this painful transition so peacefully, if you compare it with what happened after Saddam Hussein left Iraq or Gaddafi's end, the end of Gaddafi's long rule in Libya or what we're seeing now in Syria. But I think now when I look back, my assumption that this was a revolution without shots was too glib. There have been two wars in Chechnya, there's a short war in Georgia, the simmering Ukrainian East, war in eastern Ukraine carries on, lingering consequences of the Soviet empire unravelling. It's just it took a while for the after effects to erupt into bloodshed and violence. Let's fast forward through the 90s to, this is December the 31st, 1999, and it's the moment when Boris Yeltsin, out of the blue, announced he was resigning and handing over to a relatively young, unknown official called Vladimir Putin. He was in part responding to the popular mood. He was visibly ailing. Look at how different he is in just 10 years. And although he'd won re-election in 1996, his domestic support had all got gone, especially after a financial crisis in 1998, when the ruble was devalued overnight and Russia defaulted on its domestic debt, which actually helped the economy readjust. But for the, all those Russians who'd hidden their money beneath mattresses because they, they didn't trust the country's banks, all their life savings were wiped out. And then there had been the first war in Chechnya, it had, an end had been negotiated to it, but terrorist attacks hadn't ended. It felt as though the country was in inexorable decline, and all over the place there was a feeling change was needed. Putin, who'd only recently been appointed as Yeltsin's fifth prime minister in two years, was rather a grey figure. Everyone used to say, Kto Putin? Who is Putin? Uh, as befitted, of course, the man who made his early career in the KGB. An important point seemed to be that he was selected for his loyalty. His first gesture was to guarantee President Yeltsin a comfortable retirement and immunity from prosecution. But subsequently, I've talked to officials who are close to the uh, Yeltsin's inner circle, and they said the reason Putin was chosen was he looked like an efficient administrator who would push through basic reforms to stabilise the economy and, and, and improve growth. And they did think he really was behind an agenda of economic liberalisation and good relations with the West 
And of course, he was young and vigorous in health, unlike Yeltsin. And now some of those same people in private say they bitterly regret the choice. They'd never have supported Putin if they'd realised he might fall back on his KGB instincts to make national security such an overwhelming priority to the exclusion of civil liberties and economic considerations. But back then, he seemed like a solid bet, and he soon emerged from the shadows to position himself as a man of action. He started a new war, a second war with Chechnya, after Chechen militants invaded a neighbouring territory, marking him out early as decisive, brutal, and something of a risk-taker. One former senior Kremlin official told me that Putin's advisers warned him not to do it because the first disastrous campaign against Chechnya had nearly cost Yeltsin his re-election. But Putin, who was firmly focused on the idea of what he saw as a major Islamist terrorist threat in southern Russia, went ahead anyway. Incidentally, um, some Kremlin opponents have decided a darker side to the start of this second Chechen campaign. There was a terrible set of apartment bombings in Moscow and other cities in September 1999, just as Putin had been made prime minister. Uh, and it's sent shockwaves around the country. And uh, some critics of the Kremlin, including the Russian K former KGB agent Alexander Litvinenko, later, as we know, poisoned in London, uh, suggested these might have been deliberately staged, these bombings, by the Russian security service to increase support for a new Chechen war and enhance Putin's popularity so that he could become confirmed as new president a few months later. Putin, of course, dismisses such allegations as delirious nonsense. In many other ways, uh, Putin, his early moves and statements boosted his popularity more un unambiguously. His first address to the nation called for Russia to overcome its past by fashioning an economy that would generate stability and prosperity and restore its international prestige. He called for better relations with Western leaders, deeper reforms, more foreign investment. And before he was even elected, he'd invited NATO's Secretary General to Moscow to smooth over the row that Russia had been having with NATO over its campaign in Kosovo. In a BBC interview in the year 2000, Putin even went so far as to say he wouldn't rule out the possibility of one day joining NATO, and he saw Russia as part of European culture. Now, if Western leaders were encouraged by all of this, inside Russia, the response verged on adulation. There was a new flat tax, which encouraged people to start paying, paying taxes for the first time. There was a very welcome steep rise in global oil prices. And very soon, money was pouring into the government's coffers, enabling him to increase pensions and some public sector wages, pay off the country's foreign debt, and start building up a sovereign wealth fund. The turnaround from the calamitous financial crisis of 1998 was dramatic. Between 1999 and 2006, Real disposable income doubled. Russians had entered a period of unprecedented prosperity. Their country was back on the world stage again as an undisputed global power. They began to feel that Russia deserved to be called great. And the president of great Russia was, of course, Vladimir Putin. It's one of my favorite pictures. <laughs> It's to illustrate the fact that there is plenty of reason for many different parts of Russian society to rally round their new president. There are the pensioners, who saw their monthly incomes rise. The educated Russians, who applauded the changes Gorbachev brought in, but then were dismayed in the 1990s when they saw their own benefits and jobs dwindle because the old guarantees of state support disappeared. And then there were, like these retired paratroopers, those in the army and the security services, who really loved the fact that Mr. Putin was reviving the country's global reputation and prioritising its security needs. And, of course, all those workers who are now being paid for the first time. All these people rallied around Mr. Putin. But it soon became clear that the president was only prepared to go so far when it came to economic reforms and opening up to the outside world, and in particular to Western partners. Very soon on the domestic front, alongside the rhetoric about reforms and investments, were moves designed to strengthen control. First of all, oligarch owners of independent TV stations were targeted, and before, in, within months, the main national television channels all fell under Kremlin control one way or another. Then the entire clan of oligarchs was summoned to the Kremlin and told to stay clear of politics altogether. And when one of them, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, ignored that order, he was arrested and given a long prison sentence. Then there were further measures to increase central control over politics. 
including new rules that made it harder for opposition parties to enter parliament, more say from the president over the appointment of regional governments, governors, and the space for people to speak out and criticize the Kremlin shrank and shrank to almost nothing. In foreign policy, too, it became clear that uh, Putin's growing disenchantment with the Western powers was leading to a problem. There were warnings that Russia shouldn't be taken for granted or ignored anymore, especially when it came to its own security and especially its own backyard and what he regarded as its sphere of influence, the former Soviet republics that he believed should be a security cordon for Russia to keep foreign threats at bay. So we move on to a new sort of Mr Putin. And the growing crisis in his relations with the West really came to a head in 2008. Two former Soviet republics, Georgia and Ukraine, as I said, had been um, given to understand that they might be able to join NATO. And you've only got to look at a map to realise if you're the Russian president and you've got a KGB background, uh, you're going to be deeply suspicious. Because if you look at the Black Sea coast, right the way around from Georgia through Turkey to Greece, Bulgaria, Romania and Ukraine, including Crimea, if all that's part of NATO, all that Russia has is a tiny little foothold in the northeast, just a small coastal foothold. So Russian retaliation came that summer. Um, in early August, Russian troops and tanks stationed in the Caucasus rolled across the border into Georgia to conduct a short but bloody war and bring two chunks of Georgian territory, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, under de facto Russian control. They remain under Russia's thumb to this day. At the time, to avoid a dangerous confrontation with Moscow, the West more or less accepted Russia's claim that this was an intervention on humanitarian terms. Its troops had come to the rescue of peacekeepers caught up in a skirmish with Georgian soldiers. In retrospect, Western, most Western views, Western governments' views have changed. They now believe that the invasion was, at least in part, a well-planned operation to send a deliberate message to NATO not to intervene in Russia's backyard. In fact, the Russian Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev, even admitted as such in a chance remark not long after. And then, as we know, six years later, that suspicion was confirmed. In 2014, when Russian troops intervened in a neighbouring republic again. And this time the former Soviet Republic, which had angered Moscow by seeking closer ties with the West, was Ukraine. And Russia's punishment was to annex that strategic foothold in the Crimea, in the Black Sea, Crimea. It's worth noting that Vladimir Putin initially denied that there was any Russian military involvement in that takeover. He claimed that the little green men, as they were called in charge of the operation, were local volunteers. But within weeks, he officially confirmed Crimea's annexation by Russia and then said he would intervene in any country where any Russians were at risk, which really alarmed the West. And then he unashamedly, even defiantly, held a ceremony to award Kremlin medals to the Russian forces involved. And then, within a month, the conflict had spread to eastern Ukraine, where a low-level damaging conflict simmers to this day. Russia's justification for what it did was that it was just doing what NATO did in Kosovo. Uh, so Kosovo wanted to break away from former Yugoslavia, um, these enclaves in Georgia and Crimea in Ukraine all wanted self-determination. The West had set a precedent. It didn't get UN approval. If it didn't like it when someone else played by the same rulebook, well, it should have thought of that. And the message from the Kremlin began to change. Up till then, Russian officials had tended to say the West was being unfair and using stereotypical Cold War thinking and painting Russia as a menacing bear when it, that was just old thinking. But now... Vladimir Putin seemed to rather relish the image. And he even said a bear's claws can inflict real damage. And he warned the West that if it didn't accept Russia's demands for proper respect and an equal say, and new rules of the game with proper parity, then there wouldn't be any rules at all, with the attendant risk that the world would descend into chaos. But it's interesting that while he was playing up Russia's supposed strength, and this rhetoric abroad. At home, he was also warning Russians the opposite thing, that their country was vulnerable. He would repeat to domestic audiences via um, his officials on television that the United States and the West were now the enemy. And once again, as during World War II against a fascist from, threat from Hitler, and during the Cold War against NATO, Russians needed to be ready to defend the motherland. So 
For Western governments, the annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in Ukraine was a watershed moment. Diplomats talked of it being the first change of borders by force in Europe since the Second World War. It led, as we know, to targeted sanctions on Russia from the US and the EU, and the slide into mutual suspicion and recrimination accelerated. And so from now on, NATO saw worrying evidence of Russian aggression everywhere, escalated military activity, constant massive readiness, readiness exercises conducted by its troops, the buzzing of NATO air and sea defences, cyber attacks, and so on. And before long, of course, as we know, Western governments began to look at the information warfare being skillfully conducted by Russia through traditional TV and radio channels and less traditional trolling to shape conversations and trends and even election outcomes on social media sites. The Cold War divide, it seemed, was back. And since the years, in the years since the Crimean annexation, that crisis has just continued to deepen. And the attempted murders of a former Russian spy and his daughter in Salisbury in the UK led to a full-blown tit-for-tat of diplomatic expulsions, a ramping up of sanctions against Russia by both Britain and many of its NATO allies, and now a new round of ferocious accusations on both sides about where responsibility for that attack lay. Some analysts have suggested that the Kremlin's increasing focus on this enemy without was not really about real external threats at all, but much more about Mr. Putin's fear of what could happen to his own power if contagion spread to Russia. A popular uprising, toppling the president and destroying his power base, so like those deposed leaders of Iraq and Libya and Ukraine, all he could do was flee for his life to escape mobbing rioters. Certainly it's true that after the so-called Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003, which ousted Edward Shevardnadze, and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, which removed, for the first time, Viktor Yanukovych, Mr. Putin immediately expressed a deep suspicion of what he called coloured revolutions. Uprisings which, in the name of democracy and claiming to express the will of the people, overturned election results and brought down governments. And so it did, in fact, something something that, that seemed like this did in fact happen in Russia. In late 2011, to the astonishment of most observers and opposition leaders, tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets in Moscow and some other cities, incensed by what they saw as widespread fraud in parliamentary elections. Uh, fraud apparently to hide the fact that the Kremlin's favoured party was heading for a likely defeat. And people really were surprised. Just two or three days before, I'd interviewed one of the main opposition leaders in Moscow. He had no idea this was coming. Within days, the demand of the crowd shifted from calling for a rerun of the election to calling for Putin to step down. So just imagine what he thought. There's no doubt he must have been profoundly shaken. His authority and legitimacy rested on him being demonstrably the Russian people's preferred choicest leader, yet here were thousands of people on the streets calling for his removal. And the following March, 2012, he ran for presidency to return as a third term the polls closed, the exit polls began to predict he'd win by a landslide. He came out of the Kremlin to be congratulated by a specially gathered crowd of supporters. And what was extraordinary was his emotion. His voice was hoarse, tears rolled down his cheeks. His spokesman insisted it was just a cold wind making his eyes water. But it looked like the relief of a leader who couldn't be sure that he was going to take back the presidency without mishap. So when, two years later, after these events of 2011-2012, you have another coloured revolution in Ukraine and another pro-Russian president is forced to flee because of the crowds, behind Putin's evident fury at the turn of events that he'd kind of lost Ukraine, there must also have been a return of that concern that if Ukraine succeeded in transforming itself into a prosperous modern democratic state, it might become a model that would infect Russia. And what if, instead of being constantly grateful to Vladimir Putin for saving them from the nightmare of the 1990s, the Russian people took to the streets again and called for regime change? And in Putin's view, ever since that orange revolution in Ukraine, he's always seen, he's noted that members of the US administration have come out in support of these street protesters. As they see it in the United States, people exercising their democratic right to protest and say what they want. So 
in the Orange Revolution, the street protests in Moscow in 2011, the second Maidan uprising, as it's called, in Ukraine in 2014, US officials were out there supporting the crowds. And that, to Mr. Putin, was proof that the American government was essentially hostile and would take any opportunity it could to use the same techniques to unseat him from the Kremlin. So by the time he came back this year to be re-elected to start a fourth presidential term, it was pretty clear that his recipe for staying in power was to try to eliminate any possible challenges which he thought might threaten his position. So there's no doubt that in recent years Russia's been subsumed by a wave of patriotic fervour, partly spontaneous, partly engineered. These Soviet-style military parades we now see on certain annual holidays on Red Square is just one expression of that. And it's empowered national groups, and it's made ultra-nationalist sentiments, which were once rather marginal, now part of the mainstream discourse, a message driven home constantly on Russian television, that Russia faces a threat from external enemies and internally from fifth columnists and other traitors. In some quarters, tougher Western sanctions since 2014 have intensified this feeling of suspicion and even defiance. Some Russians have actually welcomed sanctions as a reason to cut ties with the West and make the country more self-reliant. And of course, sanctions is also a useful pretext for the Russian government to blame the West for any difficulties in the economy. And there are indications this isn't just among the older population who are nostalgic for the old Soviet system and resentful of the humiliation they felt they had in the 1990s, but also among some members of a much younger post-Soviet generation. Some analysts used to say, we're now in a different world, we're in a post-Soviet world, the new young Russians will be very different from those who are nostalgic for the Soviet Union. But actually, like in this after-school club which I visited, run by the far-right Rodina or Motherland Party, all these people were saying the same thing, these, the, these young schoolchildren. They were there to train to be holy warriors to defend the motherland. They're taught to load weapons, um, to uh, go on manoeuvres. Um, the organisers in this club even took some of the youngsters as volunteers to help the pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. So they witnessed war at first hand, so they'd be ready, they said. School curriculums have changed to focus on Russian military victories uh, and, and instances of American aggression. If you go to a bookshop, you won't find the dark side of 20th century Russian history, the gulags, the repressions of Stalin's Russia. Instead, Stalin's a war hero. And in some towns, they're even voting to put the statues of Stalin back to honour him. It's a symbolic gesture which is perhaps more than anything else feels like a throwback to a former Soviet era. So it makes you wonder how much of this Soviet past is still there and how much of this could really shape where Russia goes from now. What is going to happen in Russia? Is it back to the future? A return not just to the Soviet emblems at parades on Red Square as here, but an increasingly neo-Soviet retrenchment in political and economic life and a further widening of the breach between Russia and the West. Or in time, could the country return to the process of economic liberalisation and the development of democratic institutions, which got off to that shaky start in the 1990s. In other words, are we observing the likely authoritarian path, which Russia may well follow for the rest of the 21st century, or is the current trajectory not a fork in the road away from democracy, but merely a temporary detour? All questions about Russia's future tend to come back to the figure of Vladimir Putin. He's managed to centralise so much political power in his own hands and he's studiously avoided having a succession strategy. One of his aides said a few years ago at a conference I was present at, but it was a comment which went viral on social media, without Putin, there is no Russia, and without Russia, there is no Putin. So what are we to make of his position and intentions? Certainly it's the case that he seems officially, according to opinion polls, to enjoy extraordinary levels of popularity, 80% or so, but more and more the question is asked, how deep does that support really go? When you survey the bright lights of Moscow, it's hard to remember that in large parts of the country, like that factory I showed you, which is in the outskirts of Moscow, many people haven't benefited from the boom years. And it could well be that society is much more polarised than it appears, that those who support Mr Putin speak out, and those who don't stay silent out of fear of the authorities and the possible opprobrium of others. <coughs> I went to do um, some filming in a Rus Moscow park a few years ago, uh, a rather charming Sunday afternoon tea dance. Uh, older people come out to dance, and I wanted to ask them about opinions 
of their president. Most people wouldn't speak to me. The only people who would speak to me were the ones who were fierce loyalists, actually not just of Mr. Putin, but also of Joseph Stalin. So could all this change? Certainly if oil prices plummeted again, as happened in 2014, uh, or if the long-term impact of these latest Western sanctions forced the Russian economy to contract, that could be a problem for the Kremlin. It would challenge Putin's claim that he brought prosperity and stability. It would raise the spectre of a return to the miseries of the 1990s that are supposed to have gone together forever. And as, as Kremlin consultants will tell you, you have to remember, Russia may be under authoritarian rule, but it's not true that it's a dictatorship. Uh, Putin's popularity matters. He needs to show he has public support to validate his mandate, and not least to prove to those around him that he really is irreplaceable. He can get people's support where no one else can. He's an emperor. And the trick is he has to get the crowd to believe that he is wearing clothes that he's the best answer to Russia's problem. If the illusion is broken, I mean, he loves to take his top off, but if he really lost his clothes and a serious recession in the economy could shatter many hopes, then he might find that this cloak of invincibility also began to fall from his shoulders. So in theory, he could, he's supposed to step down again from the presidency in 2024 because according to the Russian constitution, he can't run for a consecutive third term. But some Russians are already thinking that he might uh, contemplate a subsequent return. And there are precedents out there. Uh, in Kazakhstan and in China, for example, powerful, leader, powerful leaders have changed the constitution to become presidents for life. But there is another possibility. That Putin leaves the constitution as it is and does what he did in 2008 and swaps places with a loyal acolyte who takes on the presidency but he remains the real power behind the throne. Because let us remember, in Russia's relatively short post-communist history, there has been a third Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev. He was uh, nominated by Putin and elected president in 2008, and then swapped places with Putin in 2012 and became Russian prime minister, a post he still holds. And despite rumours that he's enormously corrupt and very unpopular and his time might be up, he's still the only member of the government who joins Putin to sit alongside him in the inevitable summer photo shoots to show the head of state relaxing, skiing together, or working out in the gym together, or drinking a cup of tea together. So I wanted to leave you with a Russian anecdote, which was doing the rounds in 2008. At that time, it was funny because it seems such an absurd prediction. Today, it's rather unsettling because it seems an eerie forecast of a future that's all too imaginable. So, the year is 2024. Two old men are sitting in the sun on a bench and they're drinking beer. One says to the other, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I can't remember which of us is president and which is prime minister. And the other replies, Oh, it doesn't matter, Dima, I'm still in charge. Fetch me another beer. <laughs> Thank you very much.